just want to say to Purdue fans, man, I am so sorry. I feel your pain. That is, that was such a tough loss the other night. Thought that maybe we should start with prayer for you this morning, but <laughs> I decided not to do it. If it's any comfort to you, I think that Florida Atlantic will win today. They've got more three-point shooters than Farley Dickinson does, so that's my in-depth analysis, which I know you didn't come here for this morning, but you got it anyway. If you have a Bible, uh, find James chapter 5. James chapter 5. <clears throat> We're in the next to last sermon in a series from the book of James, which we began back in 2013, uh, <laughs> called Authentic Christianity. And as we enter the final chapter in chapter 5, James uh, takes in the passage that we're going to look at this morning um, a risk that I think most pastors would be afraid to take today. It's an enormous risk. And we'll just start reading at verse 1. James chapter 5, verse 1. Now listen, you rich people, weep and wail because of the misery that is coming on you. Your wealth has rotted. And moths have eaten your clothes. Your gold and silver are corroded. Uh, Their corrosion will testify against you and eat your flesh like fire. You have hoarded wealth in the last days. Look, the wages you failed to pay the workers who mowed your fields are crying out against you. The cries of the harvesters have reached the ears of the Lord Almighty. You have lived on earth in luxury and self-indulgence. You have fattened yourselves in the day of slaughter. You have condemned and murdered the innocent one who was not opposing you. I said a few minutes ago that, or just a moment ago, that most pastors would uh, feel that James is taking an enormous risk here and probably most pastors uh, wouldn't do what James did. Now, why do I say that? Well, I don't know if you have spent much time around uh, extremely wealthy, powerful, influential people, which uh, are the people to whom James is speaking here. I don't know if you've spent much time around them. I've spent a fair amount of time around some of them. And I can tell you that they are not used to people speaking to them like James does here. Now, not all of them. I mean, there are some uh, wealthy, powerful, influential people who are actually quite humble and who uh, cultivate people who will tell them the truth. But it's rare to find someone who has experienced a lot of success, who has anyone speak to them with this kind of truth. Why? Why? Well, because no one wants to risk getting cut off the gravy train, right? Um, if you follow, you know, of course, it's, you know, March Madness and all this. But if, you, uh, if you've you been following it, J- uh, Charles Barkley is one of the commentators on uh, TNT. And, uh, you know, if you, I don't know if you know basketball. I don't know if you even know Charles Barkley. I, I would imagine most of you do. Uh, but I'll just give you a little background. Barkley uh, and Michael Jordan used to be friends back when they played in the NBA. Best friends. But after retiring, Barkley became a basketball commentator, and Jordan eventually went on to own, uh, be the majority owner of the Charlotte Hornets, a team that has been perpetually mediocre to poor under Jordan's ownership. Well, in his capacity as a commentator, Barkley was talking about the Hornets one night, and he said publicly, he said that Jordan was never going to be a successful NBA executive 
because none of the people around him could or would tell him uh, the truth. Jordan called Barkley up, gave him a tongue lashing, and that's the last time that Barkley ever heard from Jordan. He's not used to people telling him the truth. Barkley, incidentally, was right. Jordan is about to sell the team because it's just been so perpetually mediocre and poor. And you see, that's why I say James is taking an enormous risk. We know from another passage in the New Testament that the Jerusalem church, which James pastors, is very poor. They could use the money that these rich people would or conceivably could or maybe did give to the church. In fact, the whole revolution of Jesus Christ at the time could have used the money to spread the gospel and make new converts. Speaking to them like this risks losing these people, alienating them, making enemies of them even, which the church had quite enough of already. I mean, quite frankly, most pastors today would be fired if they spoke like this to wealthy people in their church. But James valued the integrity of the gospel more than what these people could do to or for the church. Now, one quick observation before we really dive into this passage. I want you to notice that James starts this passage with the phrase, now listen, just like he did last week. Uh, Now listen. Now, here's why that's important. 18 other times in this book, When James surfaces a new concern, he uses a warm pastoral phrase like, dear brothers and sisters. Uh, But he only uses, now listen, twice. Once in last week's passage, in which people were using their time as if there were no God. And then here in this passage, where people are using their money as if there were no God. And so all of that is just to say, James is, James is saying, listen closely, listen up, this is important, okay? Now, our tendency when we read this passage is to think, well, I'm not rich, so uh, this doesn't apply to me, but that's not true. There are some things that all of us, every single one of us, regardless of our economic status, can take away from a passage like this. But this is a pretty intense passage, and in many ways, a very complex passage. So before I go any further, let me just simplify it. I'm just going to give you the big idea of the passage. And it's simply this, that authentic faith in Christ uh, affects your relationship with money. Authentic faith in Christ affects your relationship with money. And you see, this is right in line with the point that James keeps making throughout this book, that you can't say that you have faith in Christ, but not have it start to change every aspect of your life. You know, he's talked about all sorts of things. He's talked about perspective in the midst of suffering, and he's, he's talked about how you treat Uh, rich people and poor people. And he's talked about how you use your tongue. He's talked about a number of things. And now he says, faith in Christ also affects your relationship with money. Now let's break that idea down into just a couple of key points that I think we can all, regardless of economic status, uh, take away, learn from this passage. Here's the first key takeaway. By nature, we have a disordered relationship uh, with money. By nature, we have a disordered relationship with money. Now, here's what I mean. 
Part of our brokenness that we have all inherited from Adam and Eve is the tendency to put our hope in the wrong places. John Calvin put it this way, that the human heart is a perpetual idol factory. And, you know, it doesn't take a child long to realize the importance of money. You, you know, you grow up, whatever home you grew up in or whatever home you are growing up in, you sense, you sense the tension in the house around money. Maybe mom works three jobs just to pay the bills. She's tired, she's stressed, she's anxious all the time. And still, there never seems to be enough money. You see the stuff that other kids have that you don't, and you make the connection that more money equals more peace, more security, more toys, more status, nicer clothes, a nicer home, whatever. Or maybe you grow up in a home where you see your dad and mom constantly arguing about money and they, as, they, as they go over the budget and you just wish that they wouldn't fight. You see the tension and you just want peace. And again, you sense the importance of money. No matter how a kid grows up, no matter what kind of home they grow up in, they figure out quickly that money has power. And in an unpredictable and unstable world, it is quite natural for the human heart to grab hold of money as a source of security and happiness. And so we turn money into a God, and we root our hopes and, and all of our dreams in it. And so by nature, we have this disordered relationship with money. But because our hearts are perpetual idol factories, we are also by nature notoriously terrible at knowing what is good for us and what really brings security and happiness. Now, just think about this. James is speaking to people who have what everyone wants. They have wealth, they have power, they have influence. They're living the dream, man. Verse 5 says that they're living in luxury and uh, self-indulgence. In their day, in our day even, uh, they would be regarded not only as prosperous, but, but many people would say, well, clearly they're blessed by God. But look at the words that James uses in just verse 1 alone. He uses words like misery, weep, wail. Uh, those are very unhappy, unpleasant words. And we'll see that develop throughout this passage. There's, there's an old story. Uh, maybe, maybe you've heard it. It's about a wise man who lived on the northern frontier of China. And one day, for no apparent reason, uh, his, his horse ran away. And when people in the community tried to console him, the man, uh, the man said to them, what makes you so sure that this isn't a good thing? Some months later, the horse returned, brought a splendid wild stallion along with it. And everyone in the community congratulated the man, but the man said, what makes you so sure that this is a good thing? The wise man's son loved to ride this wild stallion, but one day the wild stallion bucked, throwing his son off the horse, and the son ended up breaking his hip, and he couldn't walk without a limp. And people in the community tried to console him, but the father said, what makes you so sure this isn't a blessing? Not long after, Nomads from across the northern border invaded the land, and every able-bodied man in the community was called up to defend the country. The community ended up losing nine out of every ten men, but because the man's son couldn't walk, he was allowed to stay home and care 
for his aging father. <laughs> you see, sometimes the things that we consider to be the best things in the world turn out to be the very worst things for us. And sometimes the things we consider to be the worst turn out to be the very best. We're notoriously bad at <laughs> being able to determine what is good for us and what is bad for us. For these people to whom James is writing, and frankly for most people, money only serves to reveal our disordered relationship to money. And the more you have, the more likely it is for it to become toxic to your soul. And if you noticed, James gives us three signs of a disordered, uh, toxic, even relationship with money. He gives us three signs of that. The first is, what is it? It's, it's hoarding. Last part of verse 3. He says, you have hoarded wealth in the last days. Uh, in James' day, there were three main sources and indicators of wealth. Corn and grain uh, were the commodities that were traded uh, the clothes, the, uh, uh, corn and wheat, I should have said. Uh, the clothes you wore, not unlike in our day, uh, showed that you were wealthy. And then precious metals like gold and silver were, were the ways that rich people sort of secured and stashed away their wealth uh, for the future. Now, uh, I want you to notice that James does not say you have saved money. Okay? He says you've hoarded money. The Bible says that, that it's a good and wise thing to save money. Okay? But hoarding is different than saving. How? Well, think of it like this. Saving doesn't preclude using money to bless others. I could say, look, I want to save uh, a certain percentage of my money for the future because the world is uncertain and unstable and I might not be able to work all the days of the rest of my life, so I need to put money away for the future. But at the same time, I also want to designate a certain portion of my present income in the here and now to further Christ's work in the world, to be a blessing to other people today, okay? In other words, I can, I can do both. I can save and be generous. I can save and invest in Christ's work. I can save and bless people. That's what the idea in the Old Testament about the tithe was, you know? But hoarding, see that? Saving's fine. It doesn't, saving doesn't preclude generosity, but hoarding does. Hoarding, hoarding is a disordered relationship with money in that it precludes generosity. You can't hoard and be generous at the same time. Hoarding turns you into a miser. Hoarding is a pathological anxiety about money and the things that money can buy that drives you to just keep piling it up. Is never enough. I got to have more because it is your hope and your security. A hoarding, see, see, hoarding precludes generosity. Now that hoarding could look like a number of things. It might look like a person who just never gives and never has any intention of giving. They they are just miserly, you know. Every. It could also look like a person who says, one day. In the future, when I get my finances straightened out and I've saved enough money, then I'll give. Okay, that could be hoarding. Because the problem is, that day may never come. And even if it does, statistically, the more a person has, the less they end up giving. And listen, 
The thing is, anyone who's honest can understand the instinct to hoard. I certainly can. This past week, uh, the elder board approved a big step of faith the city church is taking. Uh, We're going to build a home with Habitat for Humanity for a family here in the area. And we'll be telling you a lot more about this on Easter Sunday. But Habitat for Humanity has never had a church in Evansville take on a project like all of its own. In other words, just one church taking on one project because the cost is usually prohibitive. But we decided that we just wanted to go for it. And to get the process started, we had to make a big down payment on the project. Uh, And so this past week, uh, we wrote a big check. I'll be honest, a scary check. uh, A scary check for a church our size. I swallowed very hard when I first heard the amount because I'm... You know, I'm always concerned about, you know, balancing what we do in the community, but also knowing that we have to pay bills and meet payroll and all of that stuff that any organization or family is concerned about. But, you know, here's, here's the reality. A church that keeps its doors open and holds services every Sunday but doesn't make a difference in its community That's a far worse tragedy than a church that had to close its doors because it just did too much in the community. Right? I mean, because a church that's holding services and keeping its doors open but doing nothing in the community is just completely a perversion of what a church is supposed to be. And so even though it might feel safer to keep the money to just, you know, make sure we've got it, we went ahead and decided to write this check. Now, I hope that it doesn't turn out to be an either-or proposition. I, I really do. We're, we're hoping that people in our, in our church will continue to give to City Church generally this year. And in fact, if you would like to, uh, if you'd like to designate money to go to the Habitat uh, Humanity for Humanity Project. There's a giving page on our website, and there's a drop-down box with a line that says Habitat for Humanity Project. And you could help offset the cost of that. But either way, we're going forward, and we're going to take the risk because we want to use the money to bless people now, to lessen their suffering now, today. Not, not, not someday in the future, but today. That's, that's, that's our vision. You see, hoarders can't do that. Hoarders have to keep piling it up. Hoarding is a sign of a disordered relationship with money because unlike saving money, it precludes using money in the here and the now to bless other people. Now, James gives us a second sign. You know, naturally, we have this disordered relationship with money. One sign of that is hoarding. He gives us a second sign of a disordered relationship with money. We call it exploitation. Exploitation, verse 4. He says, look, the wages you failed to pay the workers who mowed your fields are crying out against you. The cries of the harvesters have reached the ears of the Lord Almighty. He's talking about taking advantage of people who do work for you, not paying them a fair wage, not paying them on a timely basis. You see, here's the thing. We said it earlier. You're convinced that wealth will bring you security and make you happy, but it's made these people 
worse people, more hard-hearted, more oppressive, more exploitative. A guy by the name of Dr. Paul Piff, he's a professor in the Department of Psychology and Social Behavior at the University of California in Irvine, and he's done 50 studies demonstrating, all of which have demonstrated that rich people tend to behave less compassionately than others. And in one of the studies, Piff uh, uh, put a pedestrian on a street corner, and he and his team tracked the cars that went by and their driver's behaviors. So like there's a pedestrian, street corner, car going by, how's that going to work? He found that the more expensive somebody's car was, the less likely the driver was to stop for pedestrians. And you might think the opposite, that someone who's richer would be more at peace, more grateful for their life, that because they'd receive so much, they'd want to give much in return. In fact, it's just the opposite. The person in the nicer car is more likely to think, it's my road, don't slow me down. The worst drivers, according to the study, are BMW drivers. The second worst drivers are Mercedes-Benz drivers. The third worst drivers... I don't know if you'd guess this one or not, and sorry to those of you who work for Toyota, but they were Prius drivers. Uh, I'm not kidding. They might care about the environment, but Piff suggested they're so concerned with gas mileage that they don't want to sit idling in traffic while a pedestrian crosses the road. It's like, I'm getting grass, uh, great gas mileage, they're thinking. I'm reducing my environmental footprint, and if I have to kill you to achieve that, I'll kill you. That's, that's the idea. You see, because by nature, we have a disordered relationship with money. For most people, wealth doesn't make them more generous. It tends to make them more hard-hearted, more oppressive, more exploitative. And then the third sign of a dis- disordered relationship with money is self-indulgence. James says it in verse 5, you've lived on earth in luxury and self-indulgence. You have fattened yourselves in the day of slaughter. The word, the word that's translated here, uh, uh, the word that's translated luxury here is the Greek word trophao, which is the word from which we get the word truffles. You see, the word is linked to softness and delicacy, the easy life, pampering yourself. Only the best will do for you. Self-indulgence is the opposite of living simply so that others can simply live. You begin to see luxuries as necessities. One day, not long ago, my wife asked me to pick up dental floss on the way home from work. And so I stopped by CVS, and I noticed as I was... I, I don't know that I've ever spent much time shopping for dental floss, but I noticed, as I did, that there was one kind of dental floss that was more expensive than all the others. And the reason it was more expensive is because it glides between your teeth, okay? So I bought that. It was wonderful. Every night I went to bed, I looked forward to flossing my teeth because it just glided between my teeth. But when we ran out of that, Amy came home with some kind of generic dental floss. It's that kind of dental floss that feels like sewing thread, and you have to yank it, and you feel like you're going to pull your teeth out. It gets the job done, but it doesn't glide. I looked down at that dental floss, and I sneered. Where's the good dental floss? She said, this is what we always use. Not I, I said snootily. 
I must have the floss that glides. And so I literally got in my car that night, drove to CVS to buy the gliding kind of dental floss. That's how it works. You begin to see luxuries as necessities. Now look, again, I want you to understand, the Bible isn't against having nice things. But if those nice things preclude your ability to give generously then that's a sign of a disordered relationship with money. So quick review. By nature, we have a disordered relationship with money characterized by hoarding, exploitation, and self-indulgence at the expense of generosity. Okay, that's the first point this morning. Now, if it's true that by nature we have a disordered relationship with money, here's the second point. Faith in Christ, and this won't be all that surprising to you, faith in Christ orders your relationship with money. By nature, disordered. New nature, through faith in Christ, orders your relationship with money. Because when a person believes in Christ, you are given a new nature that changes your relationship to everything and everyone in your life. That's the point of this whole book. And as it relates to money, it orders your relationship with money in that you recognize its potential without putting your hope in it. Now, how exactly uh, does faith in Christ do that? Two things. First, notice that when James talks about hoarding, he includes that little phrase, last days. Let's read it again. He says, he says uh, last part of verse 3, you have hoarded wealth in the last days. Now, uh, when you hear that phrase, last days, uh, it usually sounds ominous because people are always looking for signs and they're always asking, are we living in the last days? And there's, you know, there's someone out there who's certain that he or she knows when in their minds and in the way that they would say it, that the world is going to come to an end. You know, yes, we're living in the last days. But that's not the intent of this phrase. Uh, the word last days is the Greek word eschaton, and it's intended to remind us not that the world is going to come to an end. That's never been the plan. But that one day Christ is going to return and restore God's creation to its original design. And that day could happen at any moment. Now, that's not bad news. For Christ followers, that's good news. The world could you do you look around at the world and think, man, this world could use some restoring? I certainly do. And James is basically saying, if you hoard wealth, you're just forgetting about the fact that Jesus Christ could come back anytime and your wealth, all that you have and your bank accounts and stuff, it'll mean nothing. You can't take it into the next life. You've forgotten. That all of your gold and all of your silver will rust and all of your crypto will go wherever crypto goes. It's all going to have just sat somewhere, uh, hoarded away when it could have been doing good for other people. It could have been blessing people. It could have been reducing suffering. It could have been advancing the kingdom of Christ. It'll all be gone. And it will have been wasted. Don't put all of your hope in money. Invest it in people and in Christ's cause in the here and now. Don't be a person who says, tomorrow I'll give. Tomorrow might not come. 
And the other way that faith in Christ orders your relationship with money is found in the last verse. It is actually a very complex verse in the Greek language. But I think that the NIV version has the basic sense of it. It says this. It says, you have condemned and murdered the innocent one who was not opposing you. Now, uh, some versions translate this in a way that leaves you with the impression that it's talking about, like it's saying that rich people are condemning and murdering the innocent poor. Now, what's the problem with that? Well, not all poor people are innocent, for one. But in the Greek language, the phrase is actually this. The righteous one, singular. James is saying that faith in Christ orders your relationship with money in that you realize that it is the very nature of God to give. Most famous verse in the Bible. Okay? For God so loved the world that he gave. What did he give? He gave his son who did not oppose being given for your sake. He didn't fight it. He didn't resist it. Willingly gave himself up for your sin and mine so that those who want it can have a relationship with the holy God. That's the nature of God, to give. And that's the new nature that you have been given. An impulse and an instinct to give, to be generous. But this hoarding, this disordered relationship with money, that's part of, that's part of what sent the innocent one, the righteous one, Jesus, to the cross, sold out for 30 pieces of silver. The one, who, the one who is worth everything was sold out. 30 pieces of silver. You, it's, it's your attitude. You rich people, James says, that condemned and murdered the righteous one, Jesus. You see, James says that faith in Christ, you know, a person who has authentic faith in Christ remembers what Christ has done for them. And so they want to be a source of blessing for others. The one who's worth more than all the gold and silver in the world gave up all the luxuries of his celestial life to become human and to die for people. That's how faith in Christ orders your relationship with money. And you see, here's the thing. Money, is, uh, money leaves a paper trail about how ordered or disordered your relationship with it is, doesn't it? Maybe these days you'd say a digital trail, but either way, it leaves a trail. You've got the receipts that show whether I'm living with a disordered relationship with money or whether I'm allowing my faith in Christ to order my relationship with money. I want to give you two questions that you can think about this week. Just two questions. The first one is this. Why are you so certain that more money would be a blessing to your life? Again, we're notoriously bad at knowing what's good for us. Why are you so certain that more money will be a blessing to your life? It seems to have ruined these people's lives. Here's the second question. 
Is my lifestyle increasing at the same rate as my income? And here's the thing, that is a disordered relationship with money. That's a sign of a disordered relationship with money. Because there should be a greater distance between the life you could live and the life that you are living because of the amount of money that you give away. Right? Two questions. Piercing, I know. But important. Because how you use money, how you use money is affected by authentic faith in Christ. Would you bow your heads with me this morning? None of us here, Lord, have... uh, (laughs) None of us here have a perfectly ordered relationship with money, for sure. We're we're all... um, we're all broken. We, we all tend to cling to money and we, we get anxious about it. And those are signs of the disordered relationship we have with it. But, Lord, we're so grateful that Christ died on the cross for our sins. This passage would be one that is just crushing to us. It would leave us with no hope apart from Christ. But because Christ died on the cross for our sins, one of which is a disordered relationship with money, we know that we have hope. We know that we have hope. And Lord, over time, would you just be changing our heart, as a church, changing our heart collectively um, for our community and that we would recognize that we can, you know, we can save money and be generous and, and bless the community around us. It's, that's, that's, that's what you've called us to do. And so, Lord, let us do that. And, We pray, Lord, that uh, for those that are here today who might not have a relationship with Christ, that they would understand maybe for the first time all that Christ did for them on the cross, gave everything away just because he loves them. And that they can bring all of their sin to the cross just like I bring all of my sin to the cross and know that you extend forgiveness through the blood and body of Jesus Christ. And it is in his name that we pray. Amen.